there's some just underlying changes that need to be made to the business model itself. I'll start with the fact that what you mentioned earlier about the people who actually make your clothes are usually the least compensated people in the entire process. It's astonishing. And I'll tell you what, I, my, my personal remedy for fast fashion, anytime I'm tempted by a sale price is to understand that any price tag that I see only 10 to 15% of that retail price tag went to and not the maker, like the physical maker, but to the factory who produced it. And within that is, of course, their overhead, their production costs, the fabric cost, and a tiny, tiny slice of that would be the labor itself. So if you're, you know, if you're buying a $10 t-shirt on, you know, great price, but betting probably only about 50%, 50 cents rather, 50 cents of that went to a human being who actually did all the sewing. So if that, frankly, you know, so that that is a, Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda, Cities ABC Open Business Council, and then from now on as well, Freedom X um, YouTube podcast series. We are here to continue with our series of profiling world thought leaders, world entrepreneurs, and people that are changing the world, technology, and the way we deal with each other and society. At the moment, uh, our focus has been always to look at the cutting edge projects that are creating innovation, but as well, finding ways of bridging different challenges and opportunities that we deal when it comes to our society, to our businesses, to our research, and to the way we operate between each other. This YouTube channel, very grateful for people listening to us because right now we are in the top 1,800 YouTube channels in the world in terms of technology. And uh, we have passed the 10 million views. So thank you so much for people listening to us. And today we're going to be touching an area that is very dear to me, but I actually didn't touch much so far in our series of almost, I think, over 200 interviews that we did so far. So um, I welcome to our series, uh, Dana Todd. And uh, Dana Todd is the founder and CEO of Balodana. And she will explain us what it is. And um, she is building a very interesting uh, platform for fashion and digital that blends the different areas of the retail, fashion and customization, strategical planning and execution when it comes to retail, fashion and all the different areas related. And Dana is particularly a unique uh, personality because uh, she's a USA founder and businesswoman at the front front of universal innovation digital um, uh, areas. Um, but as well, she's kind of uh, uh, been working in the past in the corporate world and entrepreneurship, uh, always leading areas of uh, both corporations in terms of the areas of digital marketing, where actually she was a co-founder of a top digital marketing agency in the past. She was as well a founding board member of a, one of the first global search marketing trade organizations which is interesting because just in the space of 20 years became something that uh, right now is no longer the trend, but uh, at the time was massive. And as well, she's trying right now to work with uh, Balodana and trying to create a global marketplace platform that aims to disrupt and create new solutions for the global garment supply chain. Um, so you're going to be talking about a lot of the challenge between digital transformation when it comes to digital and as well how Dana and the platform she's creating um, it's trying to solve some of the problems that we're facing worldwide. 
So thank you so much for, for being here, Dana. Um, welcome to our series and pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for that beautiful welcome. I really appreciate that. That was a great introduction. I'm like, wow, I'm so impressive. <laughs> you are. <laughs> thank you so much. No, I, I'm particularly interested. So I want to start with the, um, being a woman entrepreneur and as well uh, personal and, and academic background. So I would like to start where you start. Let's go for that. Absolutely. Well, actually, let's go back even before I was born, because I am the product of generations of strong females. My great grandmother came to uh, what was then the Texas territories. There was no Texas. There was only wilderness and came to settle as a pioneer in the in the plains there. So we come from a long line of women who are groundbreakers and, you know, risk takers. And my mother was an entrepreneur. So it's, it, for me, it was always correct to try to do things a different way, to always be looking at what's next, what's up around the corner. Um, so yeah, then I guess coming forward from that, my, I honestly didn't know I was a futurist until I took some personality tests and realized, oh yeah, that's just how my brain is wired. I'm one of those people who cannot do maze, you know, mazes, maze puzzles. I can't do them front to back, I can only do them back to front. So I have to reverse engineer the future. And that's how my brain is wired. So when I got into technology in the late 90s, when the web was very, very new, it was just so exciting for me. And at the time, our agency was one of the very first digital agencies in the United States in San Diego. And we were doing bleeding edge technology. So it's interesting now, you know, when I look at where crypto is, and it's so clunky and so, you know, it's just, it's so very nascent right now in terms of all the pieces, but it's exactly where we were in 1997, I guess, when the very first digital wallets for actual currency were trying to be built. Uh, so it's, it's a very familiar path for me to watch all of these things come around and around. Now, my agency uh, it was called SiteLab International. We became one of the top agencies specifically known for search engine marketing, which is still a passion for me, not just because, yeah, it's a great marketing technique, but I, because for the first time, I still remember it, the very first time there was a, a crawler, a, a search engine, like billboard, basically way back in the day. And this is when the web is still so new. It actually had a scroller and you could see in real time what people were searching. This is long before Google. And it was just so fascinating to me to literally see, like read the minds of people. And it, I remember laughing because it was one person who could not spell the word monitor and you could see them over and over again, misspelling it, not getting what they wanted because the, the technology was still so crude then it could not correct for spelling and, and error, you know. So fast forward, uh, we had another startup after that called Newsforce. We were attempting to, I was very frustrated at the time with trying to, um, get news placement and realize that the the old PR guard was sort of crumbling a bit and they didn't understand digital technology. So we wanted to give them an opportunity and digital marketers an opportunity to get directly into the news. So we created a news monetization platform. I actually have a journalism degree from the University of Georgia and I was I was a packing journalist and editor for many years. So journalism is near and dear to my heart and was very saddened to see, you know, the devastation that was being caused by the digital disruption, people canceling their, their physical newspaper memberships and, and not necessarily buying content online. So in order to save the news, which was really our goal, 
we wanted to create an onboard for companies to correctly place sponsored content. And so our, our startup was called News Forest. We went out for fundraising. We built our platform. We would actually convert uh, what's called a, an LREC or a standard banner size that you normally see out there. We could convert that from a $5 cost per thousand to a 15. We could literally triple the value overnight for all of that ad space with our, with our paid placement. Pro. It actually turned press releases into ad units and headline units. So that was going well until the recession hit. And then I came to Chicago, worked as a chief marketing officer for several companies and worldwide sales for publicist agency Performix. And, uh, and then just got the bug again a few years back. It was 2017 and I was looking for, I knew I wanted to do another startup and I was looking for a business model. And I was also at the same time really frustrated with buying clothes to fit me. And because I had changed my hair color, used to be have purple and red and crazy colored hair. And so I went natural and suddenly none of my clothes worked. I needed new clothes. So I went out, you know, with thousands of dollars in hand and said, let's go buy some new clothes and found that the offerings were really not great. And so I tried to figure out like, why, why is this so terrible? And when I started digging into it, I realized two things, one, that it's broken because of the system. The system has just become so entrenched in itself and, and cannot produce well-fitting clothing for women who are outside of a particular body size um, and a particular age group. And secondarily, that custom-made clothes were now an option. You could buy directly from makers. As you, we talk a lot about the direct-to-consumer plays, right? So direct-to-consumer, Marketplaces like Etsy and essentially Amazon have allowed, they've decimated the retail industry in some ways, but they've also allowed people to have access to essentially create their own supply chains. So I'll stop talking for a minute, but that's kind of where I got to the genesis of the idea to create a personal supply chain for custom-made clothing, particularly for women, which is the largest potential market and the least served in terms of clothes that fit. So, so can you um, explain, let's say, Baludana, where the name comes? And as well, first of all, so let's say how this works in particular. Let's say I'm a women creator. Um, or I'm a person that wants to buy something. Can you explain how it works exactly for people? Because one of the things I've been learning is sometimes you and me are speaking about this naturally and then we go and people don't have a clue. So in the end of the day, let's say someone that arrives to the website, balodata.com, how does it get seen? How does it work? What's the user journey? Especially how do you want to do from the perspective of the women designers and from the perspective of the people that want to buy the design and the, the clothes? Absolutely. Um, I'll start first with the name. I do a meditation practice. So it's, it's a spiritual practice called Subud. And sometimes when you are in what we call Latihan, which is like an active meditation state, you can receive information. It sounds a little like woo-woo, but I've been practicing it now for 12 years and have really found it to be incredibly helpful for me to guide um, and to, to understand what to do next. Um, so the name Baladana actually came to me out of thin air. And I just thought it was so much fun to say Baladana, Baladana, Baladana. It means really nothing other than, you know, it has my name at the end. But the word Balo has a lot of different meanings. Um, 
And interestingly, it varies from dance, which I like dancing, so dancing Dana, that sounds cool, um, to the shriek of a harpy, which, you know, perhaps some of my co-workers may <laughs> But I thought it's just a fun name, Belladonna. Um, the more importantly, though, what I want, what I saw in my vision was a combination of the shape. I actually saw the logo with all the circles and the straight lines as being this beautiful blend of feminine and masculine shapes, essentially, and body shapes that would were just beautifully balanced in that. So yeah, that's, that's the story of our name. Balladana is a marketplace. So as a consumer, you will probably find us, either you'll meet us out at a market you, where we do a lot of pop-up markets where people can come and see the quality of the clothing, or you'll just be searching online or you'll see one of our ads. And typically women that we serve, we have two, two groups of women. Most of our older groups that is over 35, 40 have already had custom clothing of some kind. So they're familiar with the process, but it might've only been for a special occasion, like a wedding dress or a special party dress or, or a pantsuit or something, you know, so they may have, they'll have their own tailor. They're at this point familiar, usually having been in middle management or above where they need to look good on the job, right? So they've invested in their wardrobe. They understand how to, how to work with it. And custom clothing is something that they, they don't need a lot of education around but they do need education around the, the idea of custom and on-demand manufacturing as an everyday type of uh, method to procure clothing as opposed to just a special occasion. Our younger audience is actually, they're more attuned to the, well, first of all, they just love the fashion because you know they're, they're fun and we have things of all styles. We have hundreds of, of different products from makers around the world. We have 12 designers in 10 countries now, so they can find whatever their style is. And they're really drawn to our message of sustainability, body positivity, the fact that we're not wasting cloth or time or energy making thousands of garments, 40% of which will fit no one, and we'll end up in landfill. I expect about 80% of clothes end up in landfill now, but 40% return rates on any clothing. So it's, it's astonishing to me how much waste is in there. And the younger generations of consumers are looking for sustainable options that still allow them to have style. So it's very simple. They shop just like they normally would. They find styles they like, they load up a shopping cart. When they go to check out, we tell them which measurements we need. They have the option of doing those manually. We have very detailed instruction if you want to do it with a tape measure or a friend, or you can go to a tailor, or you can use any of the scanning apps out there. There's just a dozens now of scanning apps that can help get your measurements very quickly. So we don't, uh, we're agnostic as far as how you get your measurements. We just want them to be accurate. And then from there, we work with you to make sure everything's kosher and send the orders out. The makers will create your clothes directly for you. And it's typically a micro factory um, or even in some cases, a small artisan shop who will be producing this for you. And they'll produce it on demand precisely to your measures. And then it's guaranteed to fit. If not, we will alter it at our cost. If it can't be altered, then we'll replace it at no cost. So it's a, it should be a very, an easy thing. And once people get the hang of it, it's very addictive. You just, you, you find yourself really frustrated with uh, a normal retail supply chain or online shopping experience because there's such risk, you know, and with us, there's no risk. It's going to fit you. Congratulations. It's, it's excellent. And I know that is, uh, 
I think it's going to be increasingly more about the future of fashion. So as an organization, can you tell us about some of the designers that you have on board, some of the people that you've been working in the platform? I know that you're still in, in the inception, but you have already something to show and you have already quite advanced on this level. So yes. the people and the, the designers that you have right now. Yeah, so when we launched in 2019, we had about five designers at that point and only a few hundred SKUs. We were really trying to you know, work the bugs out of the system. And now we've leveled out at 12 and they are, like I said, from 10 countries. So we have Lithuania, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, we're feeling their pain right now. Um, Canada, USA, so all over the place. And um, they, they do vary in terms of their size and how they approach it. We have some, like there's a, one of our Microsoft factory partners in India is run by a brother and sister duo. And they're both very tech savvy. It's Samiksha and Abhishek. And Abhishek is a little bit more on the sort of business. He actually lived here in the United States before moving back to, to Delhi. And he takes care of the business side and a little bit of the technology, the advanced technology. And Sam is you know, the, the design and the creative eye. And they make this really wonderful partnership. And they have an incredibly tech forward production system. So they're probably one of our most tech savvy. And being in India, they have access to all kinds of fabric and artisans things so they can produce a nearly unlimited uh, type of either bespoke or made to measure product. Where we also have people like Aista Anayet in Lithuania, who produces these gorgeous sustainable linen pieces, hand dyed. Each piece is unique because it's got this sculptural you know, she takes the linen and hand dyes it and, and creates stitched patterns into it and, and a, almost like a textural chevron designs and things like that, that resist wrinkling and are just astonishingly beautiful. She's won awards in Europe as well. And so with her, she's a very small shop. It's just her, some assistants, you know, and a cat. So we have these wildly varying types of makers. And I, I think that's interesting because when we look at trying to scale on demand, there are buyers who want that artisan experience, right? They want to feel that their piece is one of a kind. They want to have a relationship with that artisan. They want to feel really connected to the system that they're not just buying something off the rack that was made by a faceless person. Um, and then there are others who are, are a little bit less attuned to that. And all they care about is price and, and fast, right? So, in that case, our India team can make and deliver in less than, you know, pre-COVID, less than two weeks. And their pricing, almost every one of their garments is under $100. So, I mean, they've achieved this beautiful scalability because they've applied technology and they have access to a lot more uh, skilled artisans to, to help their process. So, they're every, and everything in between. Our Ukraine team is a, is a micro factory as well. So varying sizes. Um, probably our largest partner is Sumisura. They're based in Barcelona and they have a pretty large production system there in Beijing and, uh, and they're expanding now to some other markets as well. Well, excellent and congratulations. This is quite an impressive uh, global operations uh, process. Um, I know that is not easy, especially after COVID. So, so let, let's talk about some of the um, the challenge of the industry that I'm sure you face on a day to day. Um, so the the fashion and retail industry is the second biggest polluter in the world and is facing a lot of challenges. And yeah. some of them is mostly 
from like you said, you touched some of these things that it's difficult, first of all, to reward most of the producers that are normal women in emerging markets that have quite a lot of difficulty to be rewarded and they work in not the best conditions, let's put it that way. Yeah. But at the same time, there's the fact that it's very non-digital. Um, so I know that you and me are, we speak digital normally, but it's what I've been finding and I've, of course, I'm the co-founder of uh, Fashion ABC. And one of the things we've been finding out is definitely the lack of digital transformation, not just in fashion, but I think in any industry. But it's really a bit scary uh, when it comes to this. So how do you see this challenge? And I know that you're trying to tackle this from the perspective of Balodana platform, but you deal with this in a much more deep level when you deal with produ- providers, with pro- sub- uh, suppliers, and even yeah. with, the, with the creators that you have and designers and producers. Yeah, absolutely. So technology is is a key and a significant key towards solving this. Um, the other part is, I mean, frankly, there are some just underlying changes that need to be made to the business model itself. I'll start with the fact that what you mentioned earlier about the people who actually make your clothes are usually the least compensated people in the entire process. It's astonishing. And I'll tell you what, I my my personal remedy for fast fashion, anytime I'm tempted by a sale price, is to understand that any price tag that I see, only 10 to 15% of that retail price tag went to, and not the maker, like the physical maker, but to the factory who produced it. And within that is, of course, their overhead, their production costs, the fabric cost, and a tiny, tiny slice of that would be the labor itself. So if you're, you know, if you're buying a $10 t-shirt on, you know, great price, but betting probably only about 50%, 50 cents rather, 50 cents of that went to a human being who actually did all the sewing. So if that, frankly, you know, so that, that is a, that is not me making that up. That's been produced over and over and over again. There's just a significant uh, markup all along the way and it entrenches the inefficiency because all along the way, everyone's getting incentives and their little slice, right? So no one wants to give this up because everyone wants their slice. So the entire incentives of the industry is geared toward inefficiency and ultimately potentially human rights uh, violations. Certainly it's one of the few legal industries out there that still has human slavery in it. How shocking and shameful is that, right? So if we change, starting with the business model and the incentives, then that's step one. So for example, we're a marketplace. So a marketplace business model is different than a retailer. When you see the prices on Balladana, I don't set those. Those are set by the makers. So we give them, I think we charge a 20% commission, 20 to 30, depending on on the, the product. So they are keeping more than half of it for themselves. And there's no markup in between. There's no retail triple markup, or I don't have to mark it up to mark it down. So they're taking essentially up to 80% of that dollar home and using better product or better fabric, they're paying their people better, they're creating a safer working system, and they're able to invest in their own companies. So that type of model, I think, is automatically creating room for us to, to rethink this. Secondarily, the technology itself is getting better. So the, there's a lot of technology can only succeed in solving a problem if you can connect all the dots and get everybody to play along. And in fashion, one of the fundamental issues that we have is that there are no standards. And what I, I don't mean just that you can go buy a pair of pants at one you know, size six at one shop and it's different than a pair of pants size six in another shop or a different brand. That 
that non-standardization is actually the end effect of all the other non-standardization in the system. Their systems don't talk to each other. No one can even agree where your waste is. So there's just a lot of fundamental disagreement over everything as simple as the definitions of body parts and landmarks. So I've been working now um, with a, a group. We started, a, started another nonprofit because I love to start trade groups called Open Circle Apparel Coalition. And we've been working in partnership with the IEEE, which is the International Engineering um, Standards Organization that, that helps to they're the best in the world at building standards and getting them agreed upon and done correctly and then ultimately um, enforced around the world so that the people can connect their systems. There's a reason why your phone works and your TV works. It's because behind that, systems talk to each other because they've agreed upon standards. So we're in the process right now of creating standards and creating interconnectivity and talking with people worldwide who are right there on the cutting edge of fast tech. This, this burgeoning um, innovation excitement that I have right now is just seeing what I saw at the very beginning of the digital revolution for you know, media and, and all things the internet. I'm seeing it now in fashion, which is that lots of, of ideas and people, very smart people are coming in and asking questions. And a lot of people, interesting, I'm running into people who came from my industry, the old digital marketing industry. They're coming over to fashion tech because they see the opportunity here to do what we did before to create the trillion dollar Google, right? We can create that with fashion as well. That is exciting. And I think it's more important than ever. So can you tell us more about this organization that you created that now it works? Because I think this is kind of the standards that you need. I think like you said, at the moment we have digital standards, but even the internet is only more or less 20 years old. So I'm talking in terms of mainstream is probably even less. So yeah. we are going through a lot of velocities, but the world economy is not on these velocities. And I think, for instance, for most of the studies we're talking about, for other 50 million SMEs and micro SMEs, which is the ones you're talking about, most of them, I would say 90% don't have a website. And when it comes to the, the micro um, kind of companies that create the, the clothes that we use, all of us, whatever the brand, uh, there's these millions of people around the world working and in the conditions that you had. So can you tell us this kind of the work you're doing in parallel to Bellodana with the, with the non-for-profit organization and just a bit about that, because I think it's an important thing for our audience as well. Absolutely. So one of the things I learned early on that is so wonderful about technology is that in general, people who are on the bleeding edge and cutting edge are... First of all, we're all pioneers, so we're all asking questions and we're all inventing things every day. And we're not going to succeed unless we work with each other and have an open way of communication. Technology itself has an incredibly beautiful history of creating open projects, right? So we've got open source software that, that was not possible really before the Internet. So when we look at the creating open standards and open communication, in a, in a way that still allows people to succeed economically and academically and to protect their IP and their patents and things like that. All of that has been established before um, and can be built upon now in digital technology applied to the fashion industry. Uh, Open Circle Apparel Coalition started when I, I realized I didn't have all the answers and I needed to start talking to people. So I just was cold calling people on LinkedIn. Hey, you're doing something interesting. Can we have a conversation? Hey, this is what I'm doing. How can we help? You know, and so a bunch of us got together and said, you know, we started having these weekly calls to share information and to try to solve problems together. And we were in sometimes 
overlapping, even competitive markets with each other, and yet we found kindred spirits. So thus OCAC began, and um, we started meeting every other week to try to bring other people in. We started a mailing list, and we now have nearly 50 people signed up in our organization, and we're at the, the threshold now of taking it into uh, the full-blown legal trade organization and looking at membership structure, et cetera. But one of the things that we decided to do first is just test our concept. As startups, you know, one of the things that you, you learn in startup is like, before you go invest a whole lot of money and build something, test it, right? Create a prototype and test it. So the first thing we're doing is as a group, uh, working with guidance of IEEE and their methodology, is to do a test. In fact, we're, we're doing it this coming weekend. So we talked earlier about the, all the interconnectivity of tech and where the gaps are. So right now, like I said, you can go out and get your body scanned. And that, inf that information, that data is not, first of all, it's not portable to any other system besides you know who contracted it. So if you did a body scanner at a department store, you couldn't take that same information easily and push it over to another store. So right now it sits kind of in its own little vacuum there. Secondarily, even if you did have it, it doesn't necessarily perfectly connect with, a, with a, a, the, the pattern itself inside of pattern making software and production systems. So there's no way for it to tell you that your shoulder measurement is this and go from the pattern all the way to the back end. There's all these places in between where the system breaks down. So this weekend we are scanning 10 women with the goal of creating a pair of pants that fit them. So we've got 10 women of varying ages and body shapes. And we're gonna go from body scan and as well as manual measurement because that could be fraught with errors also. So we're gonna go from that all the way through to the production process and document the breakdowns and the connected points all along the way, going from 3D, which is your human living body, to then 2D, back to 3D in the pattern making process, and then into 2D again, into the cutting process, and then finally back to 3D when it becomes the final structured garment that you put on your body. Wow, that's impressive. Um, and where people can find that, I think it's always, we'll put all the links during the interview, but it's always coming oh, from absolutely. you. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, yeah, if you could tell we, us about, can people get engaged on these organizations? We welcome you. Yeah. yeah, so it's opencircleapparelcoalition.org because we are a nonprofit. Well, congratulations. That's amazing. And I think definitely we've been working with uh, Michael Stanley Jones that actually you need to know. So he was one of the people behind the United Nations Sustainable uh, Fashion uh, Alliance, which definitely you have to talk. Um, Absolutely. But I think one of the things is really, I think this is the kind of movements we're doing this with Fashion ABC and actually Open Business Platform and Open Business Council. And I think really, I think that's the only way to find the more sustainable environment. So I want to touch right now on the digital transformation subject. So you're dealing with all these designers, producers, and personalities. Let's say on the on really on the down to earth, what would be the challenge that you find more and what are the things that you think are more necessary for us to tackle some of the issues that we discussed before, both from a, from a ESG kind of risks, but as well from a lot of things. Now, of course, we are among one war. Um, that unfortunately is not the best. And of course, normally when this happens, there's always, in the end of the day, the problem is going always to the, the weakest link, uh, which is normally families and women, especially on these areas of industries that are immediately very 
kind of when there's a crisis are normally the ones that are sacrificed. So I'd like to hear your opinion and thoughts about that. That's a big question to unpack. <laughs> well, you can How start do you solve the world? No, <laughs> no, I, think, I think let's start by, I, I understand, I always ask very big questions, but I think more in the sense of, uh, let's start by the, the, the producers, let's say the, the, the women producers, the small producers that are, you're dealing with. Let's start with these ones and even with the designers. So the very first thing is, well, two things capital and education education is key always um and the current factory system does not always encourage upward mobility in the factories right so there's not a lot of cross training there's not a lot of of you know you're not always taught how to build a whole product you're taught how to build a part of products because again it's that entrenched factory system which assumes that all clothes must be made by the thousands by you know faceless workers hunching over you know working on one sleeve at a time that is that is a very efficient and actually it's not an efficient it's an inefficient ultimately but it, it is a way to make clothes very cheaply and lots of them and it's the old you know henry ford approach to automakers right is that you churn out the same thing over and over and over again the problem is that is not ultimately sustainable so part of creating a sustainable, sustainable system starts first with training more workers, right? Not less, and training them to be more facile in their jobs so that they can ultimately move around inside of a factory, no matter whether that is a, a thousand person factory or a two person factory. It, education about not just how to sew and how to create, but all aspects of it, you know, getting into the technology, absolutely learning more about the technology underneath it, but the, you're creating more retention there as well. Um, and we'll bring more people to the system. Here in the United States, we do very little manufacturing. Part of there's there, it's often said that we can't do manufacturing here. The United States can't do it because we don't have people who know how, and we don't have people who are willing to work in factories. Um, and I would say there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's probably in many countries who have gotten used to getting their supply chain from very cheaply compensated countries, right? And taking advantage of, the, of those labor markets. Um, so I think step one is education always at the human level and bringing lots more technology in and teaching people. The good news is, is that the technology is getting better and easier. To, to use, but I'll tell you what, in the United States, uh, the fashion schools here do not, for the most part, teach their designers to use technology. They don't barely teach them to sew. So they don't really teach them any of the production side of things. They're really more focused on the art side of fashion. So someone might go through an entire college uh, degree in fashion and fashion merchandising and only know how to sketch how to drape and how to, you know, put on a fashion show. And that's it. This really very, you know, front, front facing, very at the veneer, but they're not learning all the stuff underneath, which is problematic because that, that keeps re-entrenching that system and it keeps creating the haves and the have nots. Um, you'll see a lot of people, I see women all the time here, like, I want to be a fashion designer. And they like go out and realize how expensive it is because we don't have the ability here to do something near shore for a small batch of manufacturing. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of stuff wrong there, but education and part two is capital. 
in the United States, which funds so much technology, we don't fund a lot of um, advanced manufacturing or even thinking about manufacturing here. Because again, all of that has been offshored now for so many years, they don't even have investment business models built around it. So you're not gonna see the kind of investment coming into uh, a factory, you know, a series of factory rebuilds in the United States or anywhere from an American investor because, and, and not that we're the only investment, you know, market out there, but Silicon Valley does swing a big stick and, and it does move markets. So they have not realized the, the opportunity yet in fast tech because the, no one's ever connected the dots for them. They don't have any models for investment around it. So I always start first in money and education. Those two things can solve so many problems right there. Yeah, I think education is definitely one of the best ones and microfunding and, and all these things are you completely right. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I think probably that's the biggest challenge. So now we'll go into some of the trends that you see, especially dealing with uh, with the industry. Um, so you touched about, of course, some of the main areas that you've been discussing. But I would like to touch, how do you see, especially all the areas of the, the digitization of fashion, and the forensic platforms like um, Farfetch that have been brought special to luxury brands. They did a massive revolution in trying to democratize the access to luxury brands online. I remember that uh, 15 years ago when the internet started, I remember that I met, actually met a couple of companies creating the first websites for luxury brands. And ironically, I remember hearing some big brands saying that you'll never buy luxury products online um so i think for instance right now probably can say that people never buy some people are saying people never buy um luxury goods with crypto or at metaverse or nfts but now this is becoming mainstream and it's going the thing sure. right now is going, the velocity is so big that people are still discovering what is nfts and it becomes already a 20 30 billion dollars business um so a bit of your opinion how you see these trends and velocities because of course you've been on the cutting edge of digital both on search engines and as well digital and marketing. How do you see kind of some of these areas, especially when it comes to fashion industry? Um, when I think about the, you know, certainly NFTs and, and where, where we are right now with respect to, to digital and fashion, I'm having a little glitch. Hold on, my coffee is kicking in. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, so the the digital fashion industry itself, you know, with NFTs and, and people exploring that and luxury or the thought of luxury, luxury is tied itself to the idea of scarcity, right? And so that's actually going back to things that, that can help, um, help, help sell clothing of any kind is creating scarcity, right? So even outside of luxury, you have the idea of limited drops, right? So anything is worth more when there's less of it. And we see that played out in crypto all the time, right? It's literally the business model of crypto is creating scarcity in order to drive value. Luxury, creating scarcity in order to drive value. Luxury provider, luxury brands have been known for years to destroy the ends of their fabric lots because they don't want anybody else to have their fabrics, right? They will only make a certain number and in a limited set of sizes so that only skinny people can wear their clothes, for example. So all of this creates this, this idea of scarcity and thus raises the price and value and then ultimately the resale price of it. So then when you get the, the used marketplaces, um, 
people will pay just as much or more now as we're seeing in the sneaker market. That is bonkers to me. So the the clothes have truly become a commodity, right? Again, again, the factory system and clothes, those clothes that are do have a resale value are like like a commodity, like something that is highly limited. Um, it, it's an it's an identical market mirror, to be honest. So if we if we wanted to create more value for our clothing, you know, Belladonna, we would offer only a limited supply of everything, right? So um, that's actually a challenge. I'm, I, we do have some things that are limited supply fabrics, but I think uh, certainly the biggest buyers in the United States, which is the market that we are selling to right now, are much more attuned to big brands and having having it be known literally by what you're wearing and the name that's on it, that you know they know to project that out to people that I have something you don't have. So NFTs, I think, are going to be following suit as well because you can literally show I have this, and you know whether you're wearing it on your body or displaying it on your social media profile or wearing it in the metaverse, that still has that same dynamic involved. Yeah, I think this is kind of a, the element that is right now shifting everything happening and on the 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 I think the bridges between digital and non-digital. So one of the things that that is right now uh, becoming very big is of course all the areas of sustainability around fashion and especially carbon neutral solutions, yeah. um, supply chain things. How do you tackle this when it comes to your clothes and your products? Do you have a specifically focus on on having some kind of supply chain? and uh, provenance systems how do you look at this are you think are you using any blockchain technology or are you thinking to use some some of the notes on that area so i'll start by saying that on-demand manufacturing is literally the most zero waste way that you can procure a new piece of clothing because there is no waste it is one item for one person who wants it right so you're not going to be returning it you're not going to be throwing it away or at least not for a while hopefully so on-demand um, manufacturing whether it's custom you know like our stuff or, or otherwise on-demand manufacturing is by its very nature much more effective and sustainable as a system than the current mass manufacturing secondarily we are starting to see much more awareness and improvements in the fabrics and what people are, are doing there in terms of water consumption and chemical usage and a lot of other things that are literally in the fibers of what you wear that people are asking questions about sustainability and, and making demands and setting goals worldwide where we are right now though i think in reality is we're barely scratching the surface of that and blockchain is absolutely a method for getting at least visibility you can't or you can't fix something unless you can measure it right and you can't really measure it unless you really know all the pieces of it and a, a finished garment is so many steps so many people so many things combined you really have to literally unravel it to the thread to understand uh, what all goes into that and, and how you could make corrections and, and efficiencies along the way when we look at sustainability we look at the upfront costs of producing and we look at the back end costs in in waste and disposal and hopefully recycling and all the the human damage and planetary damage components all along the way we 
The one thing I don't love about the direct to consumer model that we have is that we do use shipping, right? It's, it's, you know, being flown over um, and it's not necessarily getting the efficiencies of being in a big cargo ship with a bunch of other things. But at the same time, we still think that that carbon footprint is way smaller than producing a thousand garments of which only, you know, 50%, 60% of it might be sold and the rest is either burned or goes direct to landfill or rolls down into a secondary economy and disrupts that. So we, we do think that this model is ultimately the model to follow. Um, Deloitte and McKinsey both have been talking about personalization and customization, which is very much tied to on-demand. And they're predicting up to 30% of clothes will be made this way by 2030. So we just have to get all the pieces to talk to each other to facilitate that. Additionally, there's um, there are, are political and government impediments as well. There are tariffs and, you know, when you get down into the weeds, there's a lot of, of stoppage points that might affect one's ability to truly be a 100% sustainable organization, right? All the way down to the thread. I think it's it's good though. I mean, I think it's baby steps, right? We, it took us how many years to get here as a planet? A long time. <laughs> and, and certainly as an industry, it took us a hundred years to get here in, you know, in the, in the commercial uh, fashion industry. So it, it'll take us a little while to, to unravel it and put it back together again. But I think models like ours, which really just go around the current system and look for efficiencies and sustainable partners. Like you asked about our brand. So I, I know every single one of our makers and we do an extensive interview process with them, in some cases doing factory tours and seeing how they make uh, and others. Uh, and so, yeah, so we know that everybody's vetted in our system. And additionally, we do look for partners who are using sustainable materials like organic cotton or uh, hemp and linen are highly sustainable. So we look for people who are themselves using sustainable and zero waste mechanisms. No, impressive that I think it's really great uh, what you just said, because I think a lot of the things right now is how we're going to tackle this. So one of the last things and, I, and we are passing one hour, but I, I think you have fantastic knowledge of this. I think people listening to us should be thankful for your knowledge and oh, probably thanks. engaging with you. So one, one of the things that I want to ask is especially um, so as a digital marketing guru and uh, as well being involved in a lot of different areas of the industry. Um, so we touched about the education and the idea of microfunding um, some of these entrepreneurs and some of these women that are part of this. Definitely, you touch education, you touch microfunding. So are you thinking and how do you see, for instance, specific areas like uh, building? Um, at the moment, for instance, there's a lot of trends around second-hand usage and platforms that you can actually buy bags back. You can actually, and actually you mentioned the sneakers, it's a massive business right now. We're talking about billions of dollars. And actually, a lot of these things is a second-hand, first-hand, but second-hand, a lot of uh, collectives and so forth. So how do you see these kind of models around communities that actually you have a lot, especially to self-fund um, projects, to create crowdfunding, but as well to create uh, a datafication models to understand your audience and, and community. And of course, a lot of this depends on what users you have. And of course, one thing is platforms like Farfetch, they have billions of dollars of investment. A lot of the platforms that became more viral, but all of them have been using uh, a lot of techniques, especially to create uh, community-driven social media models. Uh, what's your views on this, especially as a digital expert? 
I've I've seen the crowdfunding really work to help bring products to market. It's usually very single product oriented, um, and it's it's not all. It's I think it helps because it certainly helps one company at a time. I'm not sure that the the current funding model that we have though is being used for a greater good approach. Right, it's literally funding one company, one product, and oftentimes, and and getting that to market, and then hopefully bringing you know they then they sell and and they it's still basically the the typical investment model, right? Raise money, create hype, sell your company, go on vacation. So that's not necessarily solving the bigger problems of the world. I would personally love to see a lot more of the people who are successful in bringing. Products to market through crowdfunding, through social media funding, using that for a collective good and giving back, not just to charity, not just buy one pair of shoes and we'll make a subpar version of it for somebody on the Sahara continent, right? Don't let's get beyond that. I think we're we're beyond the buy one give one model. I think we really should be demanding yes. <laughs> of people who are like, okay, we just gave you a million dollars. Could you perhaps set up some training program to keep girls in STEM? Because, yeah, they do get bullied a little bit in STEM programs, and that's part, part of why they drop out. But maybe it's because, you know, STEM is kind of boring unless you're solving a problem that has the meaning to you. So why can't we keep these little girls in, in STEM by teaching them fabric science? Right. Can we teach them algorithm based, you know, body matching? Can we, you know, these are the kinds of things that I think would keep girls in the system. This is a passion project of mine. My, my fantasy is that, you know, in another life, I, I run a project like this because I do think women are the key to the system because we always give back. Right. We always do. It's just who we are. We give back, whether it's our time or our money. Um, and I think we just need to find a way to collectively fund into that. So sorry, that was a rant. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I don't think we're we're sharing. We're not sharing enough. We're not sharing enough money. We're not sharing enough, you know, of of our learnings. We're not sharing our systems with each other yet. And hopefully, with enough. That's why I mentioned capital because once the once the the capital flies and there's plenty of it, people stop feeling so restricted and they they start making these connections and investments. No, I, I understand that. I think it's definitely. A key element here is, is about how you create these things because I think it's more not just talking but executing. That's the most important thing here. Yeah. Okay, so so we're passing one hour, so I want to touch, um, and I will try to keep it around one hour. So I want to touch right now uh, the growth. Uh, I know that we went through the last year. You started in two thousand nineteen, but the last few years we went we went through this crazy thing called COVID. Now we are as well among something that no one knows what is going to happen. So it's been you've been kind of special for it, for an industry as important as focus on traveling face to face. Um, this is very hardcore. What is going on? Even the digital, you need digital, but you need still to have face to face. Yeah. Um, and of course, the the fashion industry was very affected by the COVID and all the production. So, how do you see the growth right now, Valodana, and what are your perspectives right now going forward? Especially as we hopefully will get out of the COVID, and hopefully we're going to. To get some wisdom, hopefully, after this conflict that is going on, that hopefully will not go global. Let's be peaceful about that. Yeah, amen to that. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I, I will say that we saw our sales suffer because for the last few, few years, people have not really even been wearing pants, let alone fancy clothes, right? Um, so we saw uh, a dim. 
our sales very much paralleled the the national sentiment or the international sentiment. You can see when people are like, oh, vaccines are coming. Let's go buy some clothes. Like, ah, Delta, you know. So that was not fun. But we did use that time wisely. And we invested in um, some critical market research. And we invested in some technology to make it easier for us to take measurements from different scanning systems. Um, what we also did was a lot of research during that time, uh, including a national uh, survey to understand both men and women and their attitudes towards custom and on demand and body scanning and all these these sort of future fashion things. And our findings were also we didn't realize at the time, but uh, Deloitte, who's a, a big consulting firm, was also looking at their earlier predictions for the market and they accelerated. So what COVID did that was good is it forced people to buy all of their clothes online instead of going down to the store and trying things on. It also, unfortunately, and fortunately, it was a double-edged sword, because people were buying online, the numbers of returns went up significantly. We're talking now it's, it's estimated to be something like 500 billion dollars in cost to the retail industry and manufacturing in terms of clothing being returned it's massive and the bracketing behavior where people buy three return two is now crossing both genders and it's up to a 60 percent of online clothing buyers are admitting to, to bracketing behavior so covid changed a lot of the fundamental things it really shook up the foundation so now as we go forward um the work that we're doing is we're focusing around a couple of things. Certainly, we're continuing to build our core consumer base and reach our, our two different audiences. Um, second, we're looking at a new different retail models. So, for example, looking at uh, blending the custom made clothing as part of an overall custom experience. A retail concept that we have is called Cult of Custom, where you can go into a store, you'll have a smart mirror there. You'll be able to not just buy custom clothes, but also custom fragrance, beauty, any number of accessories, of course, that would really tailor you to this fully custom lifestyle. And we believe this is actually the future for the younger generations, Gen Z and, and below and above. Millennials, too, are very focused on personalization. They respond higher and will pay more for personalized, personalized items. In our research, it's depending on the product category and the gender, it's as much as 50% higher, but on average ends up being about a 20% premium, mental premium on anything. So that defies discounting. Uh, secondarily, we know that they'll wait. They'll wait up to two weeks happily for a custom item. So they don't, it goes against that buy now, consume now type of, of thing that we've seen accelerated by Amazon and fast fashion retailers. So we're going to carve that niche out in a unique retail. And finally, I, we've actually are beginning a B2B element, which is looking at corporate gifting. So we think that there are a lot of companies out there that want to give something unique to their top customers and their top employees and buying them a custom item is not a product. It's not like a logo, you know, sweatshirt or a water bottle. It's buying an experience of being catered to, of understanding your needs and creating something that is unique and special just for you. So that's our plans for this year. Amazing. Okay, so I think uh, I think I want to touch. Uh, it's probably one of my last questions. So how do you see? So there was a study actually this this week or one of the last weeks that uh, uh, suggested that um, I think was uh, that the, the, the digital kind of clothing of the avatars and digital things in metaverse 
or any metaverses, what we call it, I call it metaverses or metaversive experiences, um, is going to be around 15% of the fashion retail industry worldwide. And this is, I think, probably conservative because I see my daughter with eight years old playing and Roblox and the money she spends, or at least she asked me to spend. Um, <laughs> I, see, I see that she cares more almost on these, and I see all her generation, uh, and even me right now, I see, for instance, I'm, of course, I'm an entrepreneur, legal disclosure on Metaverse, so I'm not a conventional personality, but I see as well the importance of looking good digitally, uh, especially if you want to try to build a brand, and that's 50 million creators worldwide, so that means these 50 million creators, and these are people, influencers, like people like us here, yeah. um, these people definitely know the importance of digital, the importance of look good digital, but yeah. how do you see this? Because 50 percent is huge um and it's just the beginning we only start anything that you can describe as metaverse most of the people don't even know what it is metaverse well i'd say that that 15 percent is probably additive not subtractive uh, because that, that's that's more bodies more virtual bodies to wear virtual clothes so i do think that when we look at these these taking a chunk out of it's not really a chunk out of that it's additive for sure um i i do think it's not just the realm of the young, but I think it is largely the realm of the young in, in terms of buying this. They're also the biggest buyers, you know, of fashion outside of 32 year old women with two, two children. Right. So there it's a the, the gaming community is is large and the metaverse is going beyond gaming. Right. So we used to think of this as only hardcore gamers and people with discord accounts. But it, it's beyond that now because casual gaming, I think, surprises people. So once you start bringing, you know, the casual gaming element into buying uh, meta fashion, shall we call it? We'll coin that term, shall we? Meta fashion. Meta fashion. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to quickly go buy that domain. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should. <laughs> so meta fashion, um, I, I think it's it's an I, I I have well if I back to that capital, one of the things I'm not gonna build this year, but we're we're setting up the foundation for is the ability for our makers to not just sell on our platform, but to have us or someone a partner create NFTs of their designs that can be then sold and worn in metaverse because i think that's the natural extension for designers and brands out there a lot of brands are out there right now making nfts and it, like i said it's still pretty rudimentary it's very difficult actually someone gifted me an nft the other day and i'm like great well i have coinbase and i have metamask and you know i have all of that but i still can't figure out how to how to take that nft from them right this year we're still in this clunky clunky stage so while that 15 percent sounds amazing I still think we're a little bit off from that happening, but once we flip that switch and once we're able to start again, connecting those dots and making it's this, it's those darn standards again, um, then yeah, we'll enable a whole new world. I, I think I'm, I'm, I would love to buy some meta fashion. I think it would be a lot of fun. I would like to design some meta fashion. So I feel like I could. Don't uh, underestimate it. We might give you some <laughs> some uh, indecent proposal. Don't Thank underestimate. You. It. I, I, I think the fifteen percent are becoming very real. Real. I don't think people understand how fast this is going. Unfortunately, it's, it's kind of really crazy the way it's going. So I think Dennis, yeah. I love to be wrong. I can tell you, I was wrong about Google. I was one of the first people to ever buy. This is before Google was selling ads, but on uh, AltaVista at the time. And when AltaVista got started selling pay per click ads. It was the worst thing ever. It was the worst experience. It was inefficient. It was so awful. You know, I pronounced it dead on arrival and was happily wrong. So 
I'll, I'll be happily I, I wrong about this. <laughs> no, no. I, I, the reason I'm talking about this is, is kind of because I see the numbers and this is very industry driven numbers. I'm not talking just some, some guys talking from the top. It's really kind of uh, um, a big thing happening right now. It's, it's kind of crazy, but, but it's not so much crazy because we pass most of our time right now digitally. So of course, these things become much more important, but well, it's a, it's a big discussion. So uh, I think we are in the end of this call and I think we can actually talk for more hours, but I want to keep this because there's you. a lot of information here and a lot of very cool information. So you're going to put a lot of information about your um, websites and your profile. And I think people should follow you because you have a huge amount. And I think you should probably start doing a, a podcast about these things because I think it's more necessary and probably could be a great a great thing for Balodana to promote I, more I, because it, it's, it's really what I find speaking for us. I was last week um, actually going through a network of fashion in Portugal and design and textiles and for instance uh, uh, Inditex is most of the production has, used to be done in Portugal and um, and it's interesting uh, the in one end there's a lot of cutting edge happening things happening but in the other end that's all the people they want to learn so I think we need to make the balance between the two things and that's the opportunity they like so such a, so passionate yeah. about this topic so yeah I can talk a talk all day and thank you for for uh, for having me here today to talk about the things I love no, no, this is amazing. And congratulations for Valodana. Uh, thank you so much for this. So I want to thank everyone listening to us. Please go to valodana.com, engage with uh, with uh, Dana, and as well try to find the, yeah. I should, I should spell it because nobody can spell it or say it. Yeah, go it's, ahead, go ahead. <laughs> it's B-A-L-O-D-A-N-A.com. Yeah, we're going to put below here where you listen to us. You have all the information, whatever you listen to us on YouTube or in any other podcasts. We're going to put a lot of information and we're going to try to create as much information as possible and put it all over social media. So, Dana, thank you so much. It's been an honor and privilege and actually a very fun moment of learning more about the fashion industry. And I'm sure we're going to do another section with more people. Okay, Part thank two. you so much. Part Part two. Fashion. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.